are back, let's do a few obituaries. Our uh, Hollywood correspondent, or at least one of our Hollywood correspondents, Don Rose, often likes to claim that uh, obituaries come in threes. But it appears, at least in uh, show business right now, we have five obituaries to report in the last week or two. In roughly ascending order of their impact on Hollywood, we would note the passing of Ryan's daughter star, Christopher Jones, Oscar-winning actor Maximilian Schell, TV legend Sid Caesar, the acclaimed actor, also Oscar winner, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and the immortal Shirley Temple. So let's hit the reset button and go back and start with Christopher Jones, passed away at age 72. What's curious about him is that he quit show business at the height of his brief, but dazzling career. His big moment on the screen was undoubtedly Ryan's Daughter, directed by uh, David Lean, 1970. He played Randolph Dorian, a dashing but shell-shocked British officer who has an affair with a married Irish woman, Sarah Miles. I finally got a chance to see Ryan's Daughter last summer. It's a film I'd heard about for years. In fact, about 15 years ago, my mom told me I should check it out if I got the chance. It was really just a beautiful film, and it is that. But in the end, I found it kind of ponderous and boring. According to his obituaries, Christopher uh, Jones just didn't take himself all that seriously as an actor. Unlike people he was sometimes compared to, like James Dean. And it came out decades later. At least Jones told a British newspaper that during the filming of Ryan's Daughter, he was having a real-life affair with actress Sharon Tate, wife of director Roman Polanski. When she was murdered by the Manson family in L.A. in 1969, Jones was devastated, and that led to his giving up acting. Apparently, earlier in the 60s, he had married actress Susan Strasberg, the daughter of actor studio founder Lee Strasberg. Apparently made a name for himself in the American International Pictures' Wild in the Streets, a satire that also starred Shelley Winters, and in one of his first films, Richard Pryor. Evidently, after giving up acting, Jones uh, had a career as an artist and sculptor. Actor Maximilian Schell, who won Best Actor in 1962 for his role in Judgment at Nuremberg, would appear in more than 100 movies and TV productions, but he also directed film documentaries, plays, operas, and became a successful concert pianist and conductor. He said in 2011, I don't think I'm an actor, I'm a creator, or try to be. Apparently, as a young actor touring Europe, he was born in Vienna and his family moved to Switzerland. He got pretty good at French, German, and Italian, but his English wasn't so good. He learned a 1958 role as a Nazi lieutenant in the Young Lions and managed, <laughs> managed by speaking phonetically. He must have been a quick learner because it was his second movie, Judgment at Nuremberg, a dramatization of the World War II war crimes tribunal that turned Shell into an international star. The film's all-star cast included Spencer Tracy and Montgomery Clift, but it was Shell's portrayal of the eloquent and furious defense lawyer that was the only one honored by the Academy. You know, I've never seen Judgment at Nuremberg, but I've heard that Montgomery Clift just walks away with the film. Well, I guess the panel that decided who gets the Oscar didn't agree. But uh, I think one thing that everybody agrees on is that Sid Caesar was a comedy legend. In fact, said his New York Times obituary, Sid Caesar, a comedic force of nature, who became one of television's first stars in the early 1950s and influenced generations of comedians and comedy writers, died Wednesday at his home in Beverly Hills at age 91. 
The piece notes that Caesar largely faded from the public eye in his middle years as he struggled with crippling self-doubt and addiction to both alcohol and pills. But from 1950 to 1954, he and his co-stars of the live 90-minute comedy variety extravaganza Your Show of Shows dominated the Saturday night viewing habits of millions of Americans. In fact, in New York, a group of Broadway theater owners tried to persuade NBC to switch the show to the middle of the week because they said it was ruining their Saturday business. Albert Einstein was a Sid Caesar fan. Alfred Hitchcock called Caesar the funniest performer since Charlie Chaplin. Peace notes that TV in its early days was dominated by boisterous veterans of vaudeville and radio who specialized in broad slapstick and snappy one-liners. Sid Caesar introduced a different kind of humor to the small screen, at once more intimate and more absurd, based less on jokes or pratfalls than on characters and situations. It left an indelible mark on American comedy. Frank Rich, writing in the New York Times when he was its chief theater critic, said, If you want to find the ur-texts of The Producers and Blazing Saddles, of Sleeper and Annie Hall, of All in the Family and MASH and Saturday Night Live, check out the old kinescopes of Sid Caesar. They note a list of Caesar's writers over the years reads like a comedy all-star team. Mel Brooks, who in 1982 called him the funniest man America has produced to date, did some of his earliest writing for him, as did Woody Allen. So did the most successful playwright in the history of the American stage, Neil Simon. Carl Reiner would go on to create the landmark sitcom The Dick Van Dyke Show. Larry Gelbart was the principal creative force between MASH. Mel Tolkien wrote numerous scripts for All in the Family. And the authors of the two longest-running Broadway musicals of the 60s, Joseph Stein, Fiddler on the Roof, and Michael Stewart, Hello, Dolly, were also Caesar alumni. The obituary notes that two decades after your show of shows ruled the airwaves, another live 90-minute program, which was similarly built around stock company's wild and irreverent sketch comedy, helped change the face of television forever. There might not have been a Saturday Night Live if Sid Caesar and company hadn't paved the way. Looking back at his glory years, Caesar said, It was fun but hard. I worked six days a week, putting the script together, working with the writers. The show had to be written by Wednesday because Thursday we had to put it in its feet. Friday we showed it to the technicians and Saturday was the show. Sunday was our only day off and I used to stand under the shower and shake. The piece notes he did more than shake. By the age of 30, Sid Caesar was not just the king of television, earning $1 million a year, but also an alcoholic and a pill addict. He recalled in his 1982 autobiography, Where Have I Been?, that under his manic exterior, he was distraught and filled with self-hatred, tormented by guilt because he did not think he deserved the acclaim he was receiving. He was also given to explosive rages. Caesar once dangled a terrified Mel Brooks out an 18th-story window until colleagues restrained him. Reportedly, with one punch, he knocked out a horse that had thrown his wife off its back, a scene that Brooks replayed in the movie Blazing Saddles. By the late 50s, he was off the air, a victim of changing taste and personal problems. He did make a triumphant comeback on Broadway in 1962, playing seven characters in Little Me, a musical created by Cy Coleman, Carolyn Lee, and Neil Simon. And a year later, Sid Caesar would hold his own among comedy heavyweights Milton Berle, Mickey Rooney, and Jonathan Winters in the hit movie It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. But it was noted his problems soon got the better of him and his comeback was short-lived. Speaking of reviewing movies, I did get a chance to see It's a Mad, 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 Mad World over the Christmas holiday. And although one could argue it's, it's not as tight as a lot of comedy classics, there are certainly enough laughs 
sprinkled throughout it to keep one's interest. Sid Caesar spent a lot of time working on sobriety, and um, by 1982, he had a bit of a renaissance. The publication of his autobiography helped. Also, the release of the movie My Favorite Year, a fictionalized account of life behind the scenes at your show of shows. It was evidently produced by Mel Brooks with Joseph Bologna as the show's Caesar-like star. Actually, I want to say, if you've never had a chance to see My Favorite Year, check it out. It is well worth your time. If for no other reason to see Peter O'Toole's send-up of an Errol Flynn-like character who appears on the television program. Great movie. Sid Caesar was inducted into the Television Academy Hall of Fame in 1985. Looking back at his career in 1987, Caesar said, You know, everybody wants to have a goal. I gotta get to that goal. I gotta get to that goal. I gotta get to that goal. Then you get to that goal. Then you gotta get to another goal. But in between goals is a thing called life. That has to be lived and enjoyed. And if you don't, you're a fool. We've only got a couple minutes left, Mr. Villain. Should I do Philip Seymour Hoffman or Shirley Temple? Shirley Temple. Okay. In this case, I'll excerpt from the L.A. Times obituary of Shirley Temple Black, who I realized was born in the same year as my mother. And to which I would add that my mother, I expect probably like a lot of children of her era, didn't like to be compared to Shirley Temple. Back in the 60s, a uh, a station in the Bay Area would inevitably play a Shirley Temple movie late Sunday afternoon. I remember so many times my mom entering the room, taking a look at the television, and just saying, I don't like Shirley Temple. For my part, I was in awe of Shirley Temple, and, and, and actually, I still am. Starting in 1935, at age seven, she became the top box office draw in Hollywood and remained on top for four years. It is said that she saved what became 20th Century Fox from bankruptcy. And noted her obituary by Valerie J. Nelson, Shirley Temple, perhaps more than any other actor before or since, was a symbol of national resolve during one of the darkest eras for the country, the Great Depression. No less than President Franklin Roosevelt marveled how splendid it was that for just 15 cents, an American can go into a movie and look at the smiling face of a baby and forget his troubles. Hollywood apparently knew they had something uh, with Shirley Temple right away. After making a film appearance in 1934, she was awarded a miniature Oscar. And after she sang on the good ship Lollipop in the film Bright Eyes, the song became a hit, and the studio set up Shirley Temple Development, a department dedicated to churning out formulaic scripts that usually featured the cheerful, poised Shirley as the accidental little misfixit who could charm any problem away. It was noted that her most memorable performances included four films she made with Bill Bojangles Robinson, a black dancer 50 years her senior, and a favorite co-star, she later said. They were first paired as foils for the cantankerous Lionel Barrymore in 1935's The Little Colonel, in which the seven-year-old Shirley tap dances up and down the staircase, remarkably matching the veteran Robinson step for step. Temple told the Washington Post in 1999, I would learn by listening to the taps, I would primarily listen to what he was doing, and I would do it. You know, I've heard people say, I forget who it was, but someone said later in life, you know, acting's not that hard. I mean, Shirley Temple could do it. I think whoever said that failed to recognize the extraordinary abilities of young Shirley Temple. As a small child, with her mother's help, she would memorize the entire script of the film she was in. Apparently, while filming Carolina in 1934, when Lionel Barrymore forgot his lines... 
Shirley sweetly told him what to say, causing the star to roar like a singed cat. Unfortunately for Shirley Temple, when she got to be about age 12 and was no longer the delightful little child of her previous films, audiences uh, just couldn't warm up to her. So she mostly retired from films at that point. At 22, she discovered that all but 28000 of her $3.2 million income from the movies had vanished because of her family's lavish lifestyle and bad investments made by her father. But uh, Shirley would bounce back and marry the man of her dreams, Charlie Black, a successful businessman, and have a successful career as an ambassador. She served as U.S. ambassador to Ghana under Gerald Ford and ambassador to Czechoslovakia under the first President Bush. As I say, I was in awe of her as a child, and I'm, and I'm still a bit in awe of Shirley Temple Black. Unfortunately, we're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, and we hope you will do likewise a week from today, at which point we'll see what happened as regarding the vote about the California Aggie. We certainly encourage all UCD students to do your part to further the democratic process. Students have a great opportunity for just three bucks and change a quarter to do their part to support a venerable institution that's 99 years old. Let's see if we can get it into its 100th birthday in sound financial shape, shall we? I'll be a pilot too And when I do How would you like to be my crew On the good ship Lollipop, it's sweet trip To a candy shop where Bond